Today's reading is Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 1040 of the Bible's next year's seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me as we begin? Our God of grace, uh, as we come into this space, um, we come from all kinds of different places, and we just are inviting you to speak into our lives in a way that we find helpful, um, <clears throat> helpful in, in knowing you and finding our way in this life, whether we're finding it from a place of sadness or joy, faith or doubt. And, um, and, I, and I pray that you would give us a sense through this, uh, this time right now where we listen to your scripture that, that the words come alive for us, that your story comes alive for us, that we resonate with having a place in the story where we increasingly acknowledge that we're very broken and messed up. And to stop running away from that truth, but, but learning to live in that truth because of a greater truth. That you love us more than we can ever imagine. And that your habit is to move towards broken and messy lives. Because if that greater truth is, is, is really true, and if we can believe that, then we can face our mess. We can face injustice, we can face our loneliness, we can face our questions, we can face our disappointments. So speak to us through that love we ask in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. The New York Times uh, sometimes describes weddings. Um, it's kind of interesting, the weddings that get chosen to talk about. Um, and so the, I'm going to read from, from this wedding from last month. Um, I'm going to try to pronounce some of the names there. They're kind of hard to pronounce. Joa Christostomo, Chrysostomo, a butler to members of New York society, long ago mastered the art of decorum and the stiff upper lip. 
yet in his private life, he was ebullient, as, as ebullient as they come, turning strangers into friends with a quick silver smile and an ardent embrace. The result is a Christmas greetings list that has grown exponentially, even though instead of sending cards, he calls them on the telephone. Friendships are treasures, he said. I'm very choosy about my friends, but when I decide to be friends with somebody, I keep in touch with them for the next 30 or 40 years. For me, losing a friend is always traumatic. So it was when Vilma Kraken slipped away in the early 70s, stirring Mr. Chrysostomo's, uh, in Mr. Chrysostomo, a lingering wistfulness. Mr. Chrysostomo who was born in Portugal and attended seminary before completing military service, had studied English and was waiting tables in 1971 in London when he met Miss Kraken through his then fiance. Bless you. Having arrived from Yugoslavia to work as an au pair, Miss Kraken was soon a vibrant addition to Mr. Chrysostomo's social circle of young expatriates. Now, let me go back and tell you the title of this article is Absence, 40 years worth, makes two hearts grow fonder. I found her attractive, but above all, she was a wonderful young lady, said Mr. Chrysostomo, now 68. She radiated joy, and it was a pleasure to be next to her. At the time, I could see she was a good human being. Not long after, Mr. Chrysostomo, by then married, left for Brazil with his wife and eventually wound up in New York. Even though Miss Kraken took over his London apartment and lived with his sister and sister-in-law, they eventually lost touch. You can just kind of feel the, like the movie being written about the story. He wrote to her, and to my surprise, the letters came back, he said. My wife said, where is, where is Vilma? She is my best friend. We have to find her. And so for the next four decades, Mr. Chrysostomo tried to find her, searching first along with his spouse and then after their marriage ended in 1997 on his own. Then on Valentine's Day, 2011, Mr. Chrysostomo, see, it's made for a movie. Mr. Chrysostomo received a call from Lucinda Fernandez, his former sister-in-law who was living in Toronto. She and her daughter had discovered Miss Kraken on Facebook, a search en engine that had ended, ended the search. I can hardly describe the joy I felt, said Mr. Chrysostomo, who said it never occurred to him to look online because he was not computer savvy. He signed up for Facebook in 2009 and uh, has made only two status posts since. His first, in 2010, says, To all my Facebook friends, in order to contact me directly, please use my email or my phone number. I'm not good with these new technologies. <laughs> Love that part. All right, so fast forward. Uh, still, so, that September, Miss Kraken and Mr. Chrysostomo found themselves facing each other for the first time since their 20s. And when he hugged me, I think my heart was in my feet, she recalled. Perhaps we were looking at each other through the eyes of youth, but I felt something already that I can't explain. Cue the music, right? When he asked if she would accompany him to a, a visit, his niece, four hours away, she agreed. Although I thought, she said, my goodness, maybe it's too quick to go off with him. As they drove, they reminisced about their lives. Um, uh, da -da 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 -da. I'll just kind of skip some of this. Uh, Okay, so if we had not known each other before, one could call it love at first sight, Mr. Chrysostomo said. Less than two hours after we met again, I found out that she was still the same Vilma that I had known in London. I wanted to make sure that she did not disappear again from my life. In the rush of the moment, he invited her to the United States and to become his wife. 
She blushed and blanched, but an hour later, she agreed. <laughs> so any, any dudes out there looking to you know, seal the deal, I guess that's how you do it. If you could just get them on a four-hour car ride with you, <laughs> you, you might have a chance. I, I, no, I wouldn't recommend that. Pull, <laughs> pulling off the highway at a rest stop, they asked a couple to take their picture, which they refer to as their first official portrait. And last month, they were married. Isn't that a great story? And, you know, maybe you're touched by that story and touched in the same way that, you know, so many movies have some kind of similar premise where there's a love that, um, a love, you know, the premise is here's this life and it's sort of messy and it's sort of broken and lonely and if only there was a love and then in the movie, of course, that love comes or that spark is there but it has these impossible odds or barricades like, you know, 40 years of not being able to find each other. And, but then all of a sudden, of course, you know it, it's going to happen because you know how these movies go and you just let yourself go there, right? And you let yourself live into it. And, and there you are at the end seeing the, this new love in someone's life really appearing to bring a wholeness and, and, and a renewed sense of living. A long hunt ending in a reunion and a wedding. Um, that's really actually a good way to look at, if I have to summarize, and that's what we're doing a lot of this month, the Bible, that's a, that's a good summary for what's going on in the Bible. A long hunt ending in a reunion and a wedding. When Genesis 3 happens, and we read about that last week, and we talked about how things got messed up, what you see right away is God in the garden showing up and kind of looking around and saying these, these deeply meaningful words, where are you? He comes and he starts hunting already right there as soon as the man and woman have fallen. Where are you? He's looking for them. And when you move all the way to the very end, in fact, almost the last chapter in the Bible, second to last chapter in the Bible, and you read where this big story goes, this hunt that ends in a reunion and a wedding. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. You have to do a lot of summarizing, and there's you know there's a lot of analogies and pictures of what we're talking about this week when we're summarizing. You know, really, we're summarizing most of the Bible this week because most of the Bible fits in this category of the redemption phase. How do you talk about it? I want to land on that analogy today of God like a like a heartsick husband who is unsettled and not happy until his bride can be brought home. So that the whole Bible, you look through this lens of of it being like God bringing this extravagant love in order to bring back the whole world, really, back to himself. Because as we've learned through this series, This big story is not just about you and me, but it's also about all of creation that was originally created good and then began to all together go haywire and lose its purposefulness. So it's an extravagant love that comes to you but also has an eye for the whole world to be brought back 
into God and God's purposes. So let's look at two things today. Let's look first at the extravagant love or the extravagance of this love, and let's secondly look at the result. First, the extravagance of this love in the Bible's big story. And I think you have to get under our own situation today to really grasp this and grasp how we struggle with understanding the extravagance of God's love. In today's, uh, in our world today, I don't know how much of it's just regional or how much of it's, you know, all over the place. I'm sure we have our regional accent to it. But we find ourselves, by and large, adopting a cultural um, emphasis on being uh, really afraid of judgment of others. This is a, this is a key part of going about life for us, that um, we're not okay with people, you know, coming at our experiences sort of preloaded and precharged with their judgments about ourselves. Um, that's not always how people have lived, you know? There's cultures and places and times even that some of our family members have lived in where that was a given that you had to live amidst judgments coming into your world right away when you meet someone. Um, but we're not okay with that. Our guard goes up. And I had a friend who, I don't know if he coined this phrase, but he's the one who I've heard say it the most. He was always talking about how someone was judgmental critical. It was like he, he married those two words together, which I thought was kind of cool. Judgment, that person's judgmental critical. Or I grew up in my, you know, so-and-so in my family was judgmental critical. That's kind of one of the ways we think about it. Another term that I'm hearing more is people saying, don't get all judgy on me, right? I think that's a new, I think that's a new, I don't know. It's new to me. Don't get all judgy. That's our ethos. And you know what, at some point, that fear of judgment and precise critique that fear that someone's going to come really front-loaded with that in relationships, we uh, move that easily over into our assumptions about God. And maybe it's because we've heard about God as being that way, or maybe it's because we, we've heard about people who believe in God and they seem to be full of judgment and critique. Whatever the case, we transfer it almost automatically, almost without thinking, or maybe sometimes we articulate and we say, we have our reasons that we say really are rooted actually in this book. And people will say like, um, you know, the God of the Bible um, seems to be at certain points really okay with violence, even his own people carrying out violence. And I can't, I can't square that. I can't see God that way. Or they say, um, God seems too judgy in this way. He seems like he's obsessed with uh, ethical behavior as if if I were to become a Christian or know that God, it would be immediately that in all these parts of my life, I would have to kind of put the shackles on and get straight-jacketed in a sense and have absolutely no fun. That's just what that God seems like to me. No thank you. Um, or, or this other one is, is just that God, the God of the Bible is too angry. Aren't those, there are those stories in the Bible where God just seems really angry and vindictive? I, I can't square with that. Those are all great questions to bring to the table, and actually, I'm not going to answer them today so much because um, we've actually, you know, we, they take a lot of time, and we've dealt with each of those things actually in sermons that you can find on our archive. I wish I could go into each of them now that I've brought them up. 
But um, we'll just let them hang there and float a little bit and, and consider how they lead us culturally to sing a certain chorus. I think there's a certain song that our cultural flow leads us to consider as an okay song to sing, a natural endpoint. And it goes, the chorus would go something like this. I don't have a tune for it, but the chorus would go, your God is too judgy for me. Now... <clears throat> Um, now that I've brought that up, I want to consider maybe how there might be a different way of looking at that. One of the things I notice in that is that often, even when someone has the best intentions with those thoughts, and I think there's great insights in all those things I just brought up, that they're often what I find is that as much as you might have a memory or a story or some accurate data connected to those objections... One of the things that's really common is to not actually give the Bible story a fair shake. That you basically just have some little piece of data and you'd frame the whole thing through that one or two or three things that you know about the big story. And I think giving the Bible a fair shake and not just dispensing of it lightly is actually to, okay, bring those questions, okay, bring those doubts, okay, bring those objections, but to then bring, bring them into actually discovering and hearing from and listening to this big story. Really follow it through. Really get a sense of what is this big story about. And perhaps, just like with any other odd thing that you'd see in this world, if you see it and you go, I don't understand that, there's a good chance, if it affects you, that you'd go and try to understand the story with it, within which that odd thing happen? You try, how do I explain that really odd thing that just happened? You could probably think of something in your life where you did that. You go, you try to find the story. What, how do I understand that? What's the story that fits within? In the same way, do that with the Bible. Take your objections and questions into it, but figure out this bigger story. And people have done that for centuries. Christians have done it. And before that, the ancient people of Israel had done that. And at one point, so there's all kinds of stories I could go into about what bigger picture you start to get when you give the Bible a fair shake and not dispense of it. But what I want to do, instead of going into those hundreds of examples and stories, which there are, just go into one song. Just one little example of a song that the ancient people of Israel used to sing in their worship. And when they would sing it, what it would do is it would put all of these particulars of the story of God and of things that happened in real life, and it would put them under a new chorus a new simple statement that sort of summed it all up, and that statement was, his love endures forever. So you find yourself in Psalm 136, and that's the song. Um, it goes through the different parts. The song goes through different parts of the Bible. It goes through creation. Then it goes through the story of redemption, and, and it goes through all of these things, and it keeps saying one phrase about what happened, and then it says, his love endures forever. Another sentence about what happened, and then his love endures forever. 26 times, his love endures forever. Um, it's kind of a strange psalm to read out loud or to say out loud together. Someday we'll have it in our worship service. I think we have before, too. So that's the chorus. Our chorus of our culture, your God is too judgy for me. The chorus of those who spend time looking at the big story of God, they say, there's a different chorus. His love endures forever. It's like an ancient love song. And here's the interesting thing about it. 
when you look at verse 10 of chapter 136 of the Psalms, or this song that I'm talking about, it even includes some stuff that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up and in our culture today kind of go, whoa, I don't know if I want to sing that song. Verse 10, to, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. <laughs> what? There's a few more in the psalm too. I won't go into all of them. To him who brought death to the children of a whole group of people, to all of their firstborn children, his love endures forever? Well, the only way that happens is by a a group of people knowing the whole story, knowing the extravagance of the love of the whole story, knowing that the whole story really is like a lovesick husband chasing after a bride to bring her home. In fact, in the Bible, in the book of Hosea, that's one of the metaphors used to teach the people about God, that he's committing to them like a a husband commits to a, a wife who is going to be and ends up being totally unfaithful. In fact, uh, the woman in the story, the man is Hosea, and the woman he's told to marry is a prostitute. And that's the picture of God's love for us. A lovesick husband committed, despite a a huge level of unfaithfulness and a huge level of not even desiring to enter into a relationship with that husband, but that husband saying, no, I'm going to bring you home. You're going to be my wife in the end. (laughs) When you've entered into that story, when you've allowed it to start to shape your life, when you've looked into it and said, how maybe does this make sense? Eventually, some of those outliers, some of those extremely strange things in the Bible, you might not have all the answers. You won't have all the answers for all those. I I will say that. But you will start to be more and more understanding of how some of them start to make tons of sense inside the story of a God who's drawing back a bride with his extravagant love extravagant, gracious, forgiving love. In many ways, so I've used a song and I've used a, uh, a metaphor of a, of a marital relationship, but sometimes we also need just some explanatory terms to understand this. You know, we're different kinds of people. So our passage that we read from today is Romans chapter 5. It gets a little more technical. And we read in verse 2, verse 1 and 2, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Those words, you know, I could spend all kinds of time in a bunch of these words, but I love that word access. How confident are you, like this passage suggests, that you can just have peace in life because you're certain that you have access to God? Think about it this way. God's dispensing freely to people who don't deserve it. He's dispensing backstage VIP passes to his inner circle. And you are welcome. You are invited to have that. How much confidence do you have that that's true? If you do, you'll have the peace that's mentioned in verse 1. And if you read on, there's more of these technical words that try to describe what we have. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is trying to convince people of how much they truly have. It's without a doubt. And he says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Love poured out into our hearts by God. 
which I love that concept of love being poured out into our hearts, another technical way of talking about the gospel, because um, our hearts, what that means is that our hearts have an emptiness. Um, And that word comes up a lot when I talk to people about their spiritual stories and their journeys, emptiness. And so the Christian life becomes, and knowing God becomes realizing that there's an emptiness that we universally have and that God is proactively deciding to pour a love into our hearts. In fact, this is past tense language. He's already done it. There's already a love poured out that can fill your hearts. And I'll tell you, we make up things constantly in our lives. There's probably some, something very specific this weekend, past or, or present or coming up, that is an example of how there's, there's an ache, there's a des- longing in your heart, and you're filling it with something else and putting sort of the weight of your whole satisfaction on something that can't actually fill it. Only God's love can. I do it sometimes with preaching and leading a church. If that makes any sense, I can try to make what I'm doing up here something that's going to satisfy me by maybe getting feedback or knowing that I did a good job or something like that. We make up all kinds of things to fill a gap inside of us that this passage says God's proactively already poured out his love into. And then verse 6 through 8, they talk about things. They're not super uncomfortable for, or they're not super comfortable for us to consider, but it shows you the extravagance of God's love. Because it says, while we were still sinners, uh, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungod- ungodly, that's us. Very rarely will someone die for the right, righteous person, but for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see how the being married to a prostitute analogy fits? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So someone comes to the Bible story and says, that's too judgy for me. It sort of feels like someone, when someone says that or someone has that approach, if you have that approach, sort of what's underneath that is that there is, this, this Bible story doesn't square with my idea of God or how things should work. There's some kind of, if I was to enter into that story, there's some kind of injustice that I would have to suffer under. Because I, God would treat me in a way that I feel like I don't deserve with his judgment his judgmental, critical approach to me. So that's what, our, that's what a common approach is. A radical injustice is gonna, I'm going to have to suffer under if I, if I walk into this Bible story. The more you look at the story, the more you look at all those examples I just gave, the more you see it's quite the opposite. That the Bible offers you an extravagant love and there's an injustice about that but the injustice is something that you will, for the rest of your life, reap the benefits of. And it's talked about right here in verses 6 through 8. It's the injustice of the cross. That all the judgment gets, God decides to, to bring it into one place so that it doesn't land on us. See this extravagant love? 
So I'm trying to bring out some of the extravagance, but let's talk about also the result very briefly. So the result of the Bible's big story is an inclusivity that always bends outward. And we come to, the, we come to um, this world, I think it's the default drive of our human heart, is to have an exclusivity that bends inward. The gospel, if you begin to know this extravagant love, it brings an inclusivity that always help, forces you, pushes you out to bend outwards. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 10 of Romans chapter 5, it says this. So this is where the Apostle Paul is trying to really convince us um, that we can believe all these things, really convince us of how incredibly extravagant God's love is. He says, For if while we were God's enemies, does anyone think that they're an enemy of God? That's strong language, I know. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, in other words, if that's already happened, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we can boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. I mainly want to focus on that word enemy and that statement that like is making us stop and wonder what could this all mean for life if God has treated us like that when we, according to this big story, became his enemies and he extravagantly moved towards us in love as if we were a long-lost love, a long-lost bride. If that's how he's treated his enemies... How is that going to change how we live? I want to take it where a lot of the Bible ends up taking it. How is that going to shape how we live towards other people? On the one hand, it's a huge statement towards yourself. You know, just how constantly, daily, you can be confident that you have been given that access to God and that you're reconciled and that all the needs of your heart have been returned to you. Um, a lot of people, even becoming a Christian and being baptized, still those doubts linger, still those wonderings. Even before the service, I was talking to somebody about that, um, talking about how you wonder, you know, is God mad at me or, or these kinds of thoughts? I mean, what's God's approach to me? Paul's saying, wipe that all aside. You can be confident in his lavish love. But secondly, how does that move us out in relationships? How does that move us out in relationships? The Bible's full of this, of helping us try to get this point. You could run through a quick examples just in like uh, 30 seconds or a minute. You got Abraham. The big story starts where God covenants with him and starts a people. But the big promise to him is it ends with saying, um, and all peoples on earth, all peoples will be blessed through you. Do you see how it's bending outwards already? There's a great story, a great picture of it in the book of Jonah which is just one book that's all about how this person is sent, this person who has an exclusivity that bends inward, and he's sent to this group of, you know, unjust, violent people called the Ninevites who oppress and, and, and carry out crime and that's sort of their way of life, and he's sent out to them, and he knows God's going to be gracious to them, and so he tries to go the other way. And he's mad at God for how God's inclusivity bends outwards. And the book ends sort of on the cliffhanger of God was gracious to this whole city. And, and we're still working on Jonah. Are you going to bend outwards with your... Are you going to have that same inclusivity? The Bible's always kind of moving us towards that. 
the prodigal son story sort of tells the same thing when Jesus talks about. So the, re- the son returns home, but the elder brother at the end, we're a cliffhanger. Is he going to bend with the same inclusivity that the father has? That's a question for all of us in this story. And you know what? I could come up with all kinds of different examples, but I'll just cut to the point and, and we'll close this. You're probably not super surprised or it doesn't change your life that much to consider that the God of the Bible and Jesus has this inclusivity because that's sort of PC right now, right? That his love bends outwards to those who are misfits or undeserving. But think about this too because it still will challenge you somewhere in life. That Jesus also... His inclusivity bent towards the religious hypocrites and the moralists of his day. He even conversed with and had room for those who were just annoyingly religious. Now, if there's anyone that most of the people I know have decided it's okay to be judgy with, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, those, those really just annoying religious people who are just selling their cause all the time. Jesus, even converse with those people. He even had time for them. He even gave hope. He had some really strong words for them. No doubt about it. The, most, the strongest words you'll ever hear from Jesus come at those people. But that will challenge your inclusivity. Think about your life. Where are you in your life bending inward? Does that apply to you anywhere? To any spheres in your life? To any people in your life? Where you've become comfortable bending inward and maybe you have the best reasons lined up. They hurt me. They're toxic to me. Um, I can't, I just can't go there. Maybe it's not even a reason, it's just a feeling. I just can't go there. Um, Or that's a poisonous work environment. Now, I don't think that I'm going to give a blanket application to every single person in your life that you're maybe holding a little distance with. But I will say that this story of the gospel, if you're entering into it, it needs to be pressing you out and moving you out in some surprising places in your life where you look at a person or a sphere or a group of people and you feel compulsion from the inside to have an extravagant, gracious, undeserving inclusivity towards those people that the reconciliation that God has enacted with you can't help but move you out to enact a sort of reconciliation with others. If God is like a groom hunting down his unfaithful bride and you're part of that unfaithful bride, if that's how he's approached you, what does that mean when you look at some of these relationships? And sometimes they're right under our nose. Let me give you a challenge and then I'll pray. This week, I, in preparing this, I wrote down a list of five people that came to mind when I considered the question, who does my life need to bend inclusively towards? And so then I decided that I'm, and I'm sort of covenanting with you, and some of you, I know you, you'll ask me about it. Thank you for, in advance. So there's five people that I'm going to be praying for every day, and I, I don't like just having no end date to this, so I decided 4th of July. Okay, that's an end date for my prayer. That's when they're cut off. No, just kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> something may, they haven't changed by then. Boy, no. No, that's the reverse approach. Actually, this is what I challenge you to do with me. Make a list of five people. It might take you a little bit of time. Pray about it. Ask God to lead you to this, these people. And then pray for them. Just start with that. Don't get grandiose about what you're going to do <laughs> with their lives or helping them. Just pray for them and see what God does. See how God changes you. Maybe even starts to heal you. Or maybe brings you to the point of the 4th of July and you invite them, to all of them, to your 4th of July party. I don't know. That's kind of crazy, but just an idea where that might go. Let's pray. Our God of grace, may your inclusivity and extravagant love with us move us out into this world so that we won't be mystified and troubled and wondering, why is our world so broken? If God is real, why isn't more happening? But that we might be a part of what you are doing to heal and to reconcile and to bring more of this world under your gracious kingdom rule. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.